Well, today we conclude our sermon series on confusing Bible passages, and I've saved perhaps the most difficult one for last, and I think you're going to hopefully enjoy our discussion today. We're talking today about the conquest of the land of Canaan. Some passages, if you've ever read the book of Joshua, that if it doesn't trouble you a little bit, then it probably should. Because as you read some of those passages and verses, it just seems a little at odds with the character of a God of love that we've come to know and love and believe in. I've been reading this fabulous book on this topic. If you want to dive in, we're not going to be able to, to... cover everything today, but if you are interested in a book, I can't say everything in here, I believe, necessarily, but it'll expand your mind in a lot of ways. It's called, Did God Really Command Genocide? Written by Paul Copen and Matthew Flanagan. But for many believers, as you approach and as you read some of these stories and accounts and verses about the conquest and the conquering of the Canaanites, it seems really odd such that skeptics of the Bible, atheists and people who are skeptical, have pointed to some of these passages and ridiculed the Christian faith. The famous atheist Richard Dawkins, he once called the destruction of Jericho by Joshua's hand. He set an example of ethnic cleansing in which bloodthirsty massacres were carried out with xenophobic relish. Uh, He said that these events are, quote, morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds or the Marsh Arabs. Is Richard Dawkins correct in his assessment of these Bible stories, or has he totally misunderstood so much uh, about these passages? Uh, The first thing I want to emphasize is, number one, when you study any passage of Scripture, any topic of Scripture, we need to study what is unclear in light of what is clear. So we need to first anchor ourselves in the clearest picture of God, the clearest picture of his character and his love for us, and that's found in the life and person of Jesus Christ, who came down to this world, lived the perfect life, demonstrated that heaven will, will hold nothing back in order to save us, in order to demonstrate heaven's love for humanity. And when Jesus died on that cruel cross, he demonstrated that God loves us with a kind of love that is beyond comprehension. That clear picture of that God of love needs to be our anchor as we navigate the sometimes murky waters of some Old Testament and, quite honestly, some New Testament stories. We need to remember stories and verses which clearly teach us Jesus loves us, and Jesus loves not only adults, but he loves children too. Even when his disciples weren't sure about having kids around, Jesus said, no, 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 bring those kids to me. Unless you receive the kingdom like a child, you can't be saved. Passages where Jesus teaches clearly that our Father even cares about the little birds, Harold, the sparrows. And when one of them falls to the ground, God notices. 
He notices how many hairs are on our head because he loves us that much. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Not just New Testament teaching, the book of Ezekiel teaches us God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And we saw in our series through Micah that God takes sin seriously, but he sure loves mercy. He delights in giving mercy. And we won't study this out today, but it's clear that the God of the New Testament is the same God as the God of the Old Testament. It's not two different gods as some naively believe. So having this in mind, it's also important to note that believers throughout the ages have not always struggled with some of these stories. In fact, I'm going to put a quote here up on the screen. The early New Testament church didn't seem to have much problem with some of these stories. I'll put a quote here on the screen for you from God, John Golden, uh, Golden Gay. He says this, Many modern people don't like the way the book of Joshua portrays Joshua's leading Israel and killing many Canaanites. But there's no indication that the New Testament shares this modern unease. The New Testament pictures Joshua as a great hero, see Hebrews chapter 11, and portrays God's violent dispossession of the Canaanites as a part of the achievement of God's purposes in salvation, see Acts chapter 7. If there is a contradiction between loving your enemies and being peacemakers on the one hand, and Joshua's undertaking this task at God's command on the other, the New Testament does not see it. So this is a very interesting point. We may have issues, but not all believers, even the ones who knew Jesus personally, they didn't seem to have the same um, misunderstandings that we may have today. Interestingly enough, when the Gallup poll surveyed America in 2019, for the first time in their history of polling, more Americans were in favor of life in prison than they were for capital punishment. Which means that more Americans would say, well, sure, the guy raped and killed 20 people, but we don't think it's right to put him to death. They said, let's just keep him locked up forever. So this is a big shift in thinking. So we have to realize our cultural understandings and current views on things shape the way we look back into a different time, a different place, and a different culture. So a lot of sermons have three points. That's kind of the stereotypical sermon. My sermon today has nine. But don't worry, most of them are going to go by pretty quickly. Point number one we've already covered. Jesus demonstrated clearly just how much God loves us. And he's willing to do everything and anything to bring salvation. Given this, when we read passages like go out and kill all the Canaanites, don't leave one alive, etc., that can kind of cause us to be a little bit confused. But don't forget, Jesus, God, loves us with an everlasting love. Point number two. The land of Canaan was actually already promised to Abraham's descendants long before God allowed them to inhabit it. Check this out. I'm putting a verse up on the screen. Genesis chapter 15. Then the Lord said to Abraham, to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there. 
and they will be afflicted for how many years? 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God had promised the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants, but they were going to have to wait for it. And so that leads us to point number three. God gave 400 extra years of mercy to the people who lived in that time. And in Abraham's day, the people were corrupt. But he gave 400 years, allowing his people to actually become enslaved in Egypt in the meantime, because God wanted it to be completely and utterly and totally clear that the Amorites, and by that time, the Canaanites in general, were no longer worthy to live there and that they deserved the judgment that was going to fall on them. Now, it's interesting. Skeptics will sometimes say, well, if God is good and God exists, then why doesn't he do something about all the evil in our world? And then later on, when Christians claim that God has done things and brought judgment in uh, the world for evil, people will say, well, why did God bring this punishment and why did he cause all this suffering? And people fail to realize the irony there. On the one hand, if you want God to do something, then you can't complain when he does something. The reason why he delays punishment is because God is loving and God is merciful and he's long-suffering and patient. But when he gives punishment, it's because God is loving and merciful and God is just. Point number four, the Canaanites were a wicked unrepentant and corrupt people. When you read about them in Leviticus 18, these were people who practiced incest, adultery, bestiality, ritual prostitution, and a number of other forbidden sexual practices. But the most morally reprehensible one, objectionable one to us, would be their practice of sacrificial, uh, sacrificing kids to the god Molech. Deuteronomy chapter 12, 29 to 31, describes how they would offer up children to their God. Um, this is a, I mean, you think about the kind of culture that allows that. We live in a culture today where if you admit that you spank your child, you might get a visit from the police, right? So you can understand that if a culture allows and even applauds parents who give their children sacrificed to idols, that must be a very corrupt culture. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, I have a graphic here, a picture, an artist's representation of this kind of scene. You can see the trumpeters there. You can see uh, this individual presenting uh, this child. And this is a very graphic um, illustration, but I want you to understand the culture in which God was dealing with. These kids, and we don't know the numbers of how many kids would die in the process year after year, ceremony after ceremony, but that's the setting in which God gave these commands for his people to go in and to destroy this culture. So point number four, the Canaanites were not innocent. They were wicked. 
they were unrepentant. Point number five. I told you we'd move through them quickly. Point number five. The instructions to wipe out the Canaanites were an exception to the normal rules of war that God had given to his people. These were not your typical rules of engagement. These were a unique exception. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 through 18, describes the process, the normal rules of engagement as they were on their way to Canaan. And the normal process was seek a peaceful solution. If the city that you're seeking a peaceful solution to says, no, we don't want that, and engages you in war, they were permitted to siege the city and engage in war. They were permitted to kill in battle the men of the city. But the women, the children, the livestock were to remain alive and they could be taken along with them on their journey to the promised land. It was only the specific group of the Canaanites, these specific, there's like seven different people groups mentioned that God gave a different command to. And we'll look at that here from Deuteronomy chapter 20 on the screen. God said this, but the cities of the, in the people's, excuse me, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the uh, Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So these commands to wipe out the Canaanites were very exceptional. They were an exception to the normal rule. The others were not supposed to be um, dealt with in this manner. And notice at the end there, one of the reasons for doing this was given. And the reason was so that they don't teach you and so that you don't start doing the same thing, which is point number six. The Canaanites were to be removed, at least in part, to help preserve Israel and to keep them from this evil. And we think about why. Remember, they were practicing child sacrifice. God didn't want his people to have any part of that. God loves children. God loves adults. He, it pains his heart anytime he sees suffering in this world. And God didn't want his people falling into these idolatrous practices, let alone all the other things that we mentioned, this oppressive, abusive society. And Israel was supposed to be a light to the world. They had a mission to be a light. And strategically, the land of Canaan was at the crossroads and is at the crossroads of the continents. If you were going to go from Africa to Europe or to Asia, you crossed through the land of Israel. And God wanted his people to be holy and special and dedicated to him to let the others know how good God is and to show a better way of living. Not only that, but the out of the people was to come the Messiah. The only way to save the world is through the Messiah. And if the people group that has the, the, the line of the Messiah is going to come from, if they totally abandon God, if they're wiped off the face of the earth, we might not even get to Jesus. And so it was vital to the salvation of the world that these people remain faithful to God. But by the way, as you'll recall, they often didn't. In fact, sometimes they fell into the same sins as the people around them. But God is just. 
because God also dispossessed his people from the land of Canaan a couple of times in the same way uh, that happened to the Canaanites. Look at this from the book of Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18, it says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations um, I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nations that was before you. God says... Don't do all these bad things. And you can read the the broader context there. Because if you do them, you're going to get kicked out of the land just like the other people. God was just and consistent in his practice. Which leads me to point number seven. Because it's easy to justify, or at least easier to justify, when people who are wicked and committing child sacrifice and leading people into uh, cult prostitution and so forth and so on, it's easier to justify their extermination than if there are innocent uh, children or babies that are too young to know the difference between right and wrong. And that becomes a lot more challenging, but point number seven is this. If innocent lives were lost, and, and probably a number were, God is able to make it right. It's worth noting that nobody needed to die, technically. If they had fled from the land, as we'll see evidence God wanted them to, nobody needed to die. It's also worth noting that in our world, innocent people die all the time, uh, in all sorts of circumstances. And if there is no God, there's no way to make right the wrong of those who die innocently. Does that make sense? Like, if, if there's a bunch of bad people, gang members in Modesto, that do a drive-by shooting and they kill some little kid, if there's no God, that's it. There's no more possibilities for that wrong to be made right. But if there is a God a God who knows all things, only in that circumstance is there the option and possibility that God in the afterlife can make right what was wrong in the former life. And so while I I can't speak with authority here, I believe there will be a lot of people in heaven who died innocently uh, in all sorts of circumstances, and they'll have the opportunity Uh, Many of them, as little babies who died, will get to grow up in a perfect place. A place of perfect peace. A a place with no cult prostitution. A place with no child sacrifices. Our God can make right anything that was made wrong from our perspective. And so while we hate the idea that innocent may have suffered along with the guilty, we recognize that God is able to fix this. If anybody can do it, it's God. And if, only if God is real are situations like the death of the innocent able to be made right in some way. 
It also seems likely that this is a case where the greater good demanded such actions. Think back, September 11, uh, Flight 93, Todd Beamer and a number of other passengers learned that the Twin Towers had been attacked, that the Pentagon had been hit, uh, aircraft had been commandeered by uh, ruthless terrorists who had slammed the aircraft into these buildings, not only killing everybody on board, but killing thousands of other people, innocent people along the way. And when Todd Beamer and the people realized they too were being hijacked, they too were heading for some unknown destination, probably the White House or the Capitol building, they realized we have to do something. They formulated a plan, stormed the cockpit, overpowered the terrorists, and in an act of what we call heroism, uh, they drove that airplane into the ground, saving the loss of additional life, but in the process, killing everybody on board. But yet today, Todd Beamer, who helped with this, we don't say that he murdered innocent people on board that aircraft as they pushed the controls forward. We say they did an act of heroism. It was for the greater good, and more lives were saved because of their actions. Sometimes, as hard as it is to understand, God, who can see things only objectively, all of us are biased, is able to see the big picture, and he can see what the greater good is better than we can. Sometimes a surgeon has to cut out good tissue uh, in the process of removing the bad tissue for the greater good of the person. In our sin-infested world, sometimes the innocent do die along with the wicked. But we serve a God who is able to fix that and is able to make even tragedies like this right. And you better believe, if this hurts our hearts to think about, it hurts God's heart even more. Because that's the kind of character that our God has. Point number eight, just two more. Point number eight. The majority of the verses that talk about the conquest of the land of Canaan do so in terms of dispossession, kicking out of the land, rather than annihilation, complete destruction. And let me show you a few examples. Exodus chapter 23, notice this. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people of whom against against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. That means run away. And I will send hornets before you. Maybe murder hornets. We learned about those this last year, right? Uh, big scary things. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year. Notice this is a gradual process. Lest the land become desolate, and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased to dispossess or to possess the land. So here we see a different picture. God is saying, I want to send fear. I want to send these things ahead of you so that the people run and flee and you can possess the land little by little. Notice in the book of Leviticus, 
Oh, there was more to that. Quote, let me read the last part. And I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Driving out. Now we go to Leviticus. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Again, the land kicking people out. Notice the book of Numbers, chapter 33. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you shall what? Drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy their metal images and demolish all their high places. Okay? Numbers continues, verses 55 and 56. But if you do not, what? Drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. If you don't drive them out, they're going to stay around, and they're going to be thorns in your side. Now, when you read the book of Joshua, sometimes you get the idea that everybody was destroyed and nobody was left, but God even foretold, if you don't drive them out, they're still going to be around, and they're going to be bugging you, and then it's going to be problematic for you as well. Well, what does the book of Deuteronomy say? Deuteronomy 7.1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it, and does what? Clears away many nations from before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and more mighty than you. And then chapter 19, when the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you and you dispossess them, you kick them out and dwell in their cities and in their houses. Okay, are you getting a picture here? In fact, as you look at all the verses that describe the conquest of Canaan, 33 times words like dispossess, drive out, thrust out are used, and only 11 times are words like annihilate, destroy, and so forth. So there's a three-to-one ratio. You can clearly see the way that God prefers things to be. This has made people like William Lane Craig say things like this quote right here. He said this, If the Canaanite tribes, seeing the armies of Israel, had simply chosen to flee, no one would have been killed at all. There was no command to pursue and hunt down the Canaanite peoples. It is therefore misleading to characterize God's command to Israel as a command to commit genocide. Rather, it was first and foremost a command to drive the tribes out of the land, and to occupy it. Only those who remained behind were to be utterly exterminated. And remember, I, think, I find this point compelling, but it's not just the fact that they stayed behind that they were deserving of God's judgment, right? They had an opportunity to escape, but God had already determined 400 years of mercy, 400 years to change your ways, to turn from your sins, 400 years of stubborn hearts and child sacrifice. And that was probably the bigger cause. And then God gave them the opportunity to escape. And I was thinking earlier, Jericho. How many days did they march around the walls of Jericho? 
Seven different days. Now, of course, living in the city, they didn't know it was going to be seven. But after about the third day, you might start to wonder, what's going on here? If I lived in Jericho and I saw those massive armies, bigger than our armies, marching around my city, I would strongly consider running away, wouldn't you? Hey, they didn't attack us today. Let's slip out the gate tonight and go into the woods and let's cross over and let's, let's find our way to another place to live. So point number seven, or rather eight, the majority of the verses, they talk about dispossession rather than annihilation. And we get to the last point. And I'm going to summarize all the points because there have been a lot of them, I realize. The last point is this, not all were destroyed. In fact, there may be what we call hyperbole employed in the text. Uh, exaggeration, which was a common rhetorical device. And we've seen hyperbole in other verses of the Bible. Because if you just read Joshua, you get the idea that everybody died. But when you read Judges, chapter 1 and 2, you realize, oh, there are still a whole bunch of people left around. In fact, we see what we saw earlier, that this was more of going to be a gradual process. But we, we also do see that the people failed to drive out the people as well as they should have. And so some have wondered, what's the disconnect between Joshua and Judges? And there could be different ways to explain it, and some have seen in the writings and the descriptions of Joshua hyperbole, uh, describing these things. And it's kind of like, Phil, you know, when we play pickleball, and you play a game to 11, 11 points, but I might be tempted if I beat a team 11 to 2, 11 to 5, whatever. I might say, we destroyed them. We annihilated them. We paddled them. And, well, we didn't actually kill them, and we didn't hit them with our paddles. And we just, you know, we had a good game. We fought hard. Well, we didn't actually fight. We were playing the game. But we use hyperbole in our speech all the time. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that some of this may be in the biblical text as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the, as you read in context, it may become obvious that hyperbole is used. So there's that to consider. Um, notice also, this is an interesting case, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. And the men of Judah fought against who? Jerusalem. Okay, and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on what? On fire. So as you read this, you say, boy, everybody must have died. They must have killed everybody. Well, just a few verses later in the same chapter, verse 21, it says, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Who lived and where? Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So there are clues, even within the text, that maybe some of this hyperbolic language was used. Uh, you think about uh, another example here, Second Chronicles. Uh, let me read this one to you, Second Chronicles chapter 36. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, and there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed the young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And if you just read those verses, you'd say, 
Boy, when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem, they killed everybody. But we know from the book of Daniel that's certainly not the case. And we know just from three verses later that's not the case. He took into exile in Babylon those who had what? Escaped. Those who ran away. And they became servants to him and his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. So as we read these interesting and sometimes troubling stories, we need to read it in the broader context of Scripture. And we need to remember all the nine points <laughs> that I have shared today, which will be helpful. Finally, think about the story of Rahab. Rahab lived in what city? Jericho. Rahab was, she was a part of this people group. But was her heart open to change? And what did, the, what did the spies say to her? Anybody that's inside your house will be safe. Whoever puts their trust in the God of the Israelites will be saved. And she hung that cord. What color was it? Red. On her window, much like the red blood on the doorposts that prevented the destroying angel from uh, killing those who were inside the homes in the Exodus. Here is an example of somebody whose heart was open in her life, in the life of how many family members, we're not sure, were also saved. So let's review where we've been before we wrap up. Point number one. Put it on the screen here for you. Point number one. Jesus gives us the clearest revelation that God loves us and wants everybody to be saved. Point two. The land of Canaan was already given to Abraham's descendants well before they inhabited it. They weren't stealing it. They were evicting the people who refused to leave. Point number three. God delayed allowing Abraham's descendants to move in for 400 years because he was giving the Amorites more grace. Point four, the Canaanites and Amorites were unrepentant, wicked, and corrupt people. Point number five, as you'll recall, the instructions to wipe out the Canaanites were exceptions to the normal rules of war, a unique exception. Point number six, the Canaanites were to be removed in part to help preserve them, uh, the Israelites, from the evil influence, uh, the corrupting, awful influence of their culture. Point seven, if innocent lives were lost, God is able to make it right. Number eight, the majority of the verses that we read talk rather about dispossession, kicking out of the land rather than annihilation. It was only those who didn't flee that ended up perishing. Point number nine, not all were destroyed, and some accounts may be hyperbolic. They may include hyperbole. A number of years ago, when I was a boy, I was camping with my dad and family friends up at Priest Lake, Idaho. Sarah's going to get to go there for the first time ever this summer, in July. I'm super excited about it. Priest Lake, wonderful place. And I remember one evening, I think my dad and I, I don't know what we were doing exactly, but we were near the water or in the water, and one of my dad's friends, I think, was being really careful not to get himself wet. He may have climbed on top of his boat that was pulled up on the shore, and maybe he was sitting on the back of the boat, uh, rinsing himself in some way. But he, didn't, he obviously didn't want to get completely soaked. 
And my dad, who grew up with this guy and was good friends with him, saw that he was trying not to get wet and thought it would be fun to splash him a little bit. And I thought that was a fun idea too. So I started to splash a little water on him. And you know what it's like when you don't want to get wet, when you don't want to get splashed, you recoil because it's cold and you don't want that. It's not. Well, we kept it up and then we could see things had shifted and now he was mad and he started towards us. And all of a sudden, my dad grabbed me and he threw me into the water. Yeah, Rhea, that's what I thought. Uh, why did my dad do this? It, it seemed like an unloving thing to do. Now I'm totally soaked, I'm cold, I'm wet, I'm a little traumatized that my dad just threw me into the water. But from years of experience with my dad, I knew that my dad loved me. And what was clear was all those previous years of experience with my father, and so I knew my dad loved me even though I didn't understand in the moment why I am tossed into the lake. And only later on that evening did he explain to me, he said, I knew doing that to you would prevent you from him doing something worse. He knew it was the more loving action for the greater good for him to soak me so that there, oh, well, he's wet already. I won't go after John. I'm going to go after Mike. And so the strange act of my dad was actually an act of love to save me. Sometimes in the Bible, there are stories like this, like the conquering of Canaan, that seem like a strange act of God, but we must never forget our God is a God of love, and there's nothing he won't do to demonstrate his love towards us, to us, and there's nothing that he won't do to save us. Let's keep these things in mind as we continue to read and seek to better understand God's word. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are a loving Heavenly Father. We probably didn't clear up all the questions today, Lord, uh, but hopefully we're, we're making a step in the right direction. We pray that you'll continue to give us wisdom as we seek you, as we seek to understand you. And Lord Jesus, as we contemplate, uh, hopefully daily, what you've done for us, Fill our hearts with greater awe and thanks as we, as we become more and more convinced, not only intellectually but emotionally, that you love us with an everlasting love, that there's nothing you wouldn't do to save us and to show us your love. And we look forward to experiencing that love in person, face to face, someday soon when you come back to take us home. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.